I want you to keep it tuned right here. Up next, it's the McShank Podcast Boys, Ryan and Clayton, coming at you on KMPN in sunny Los Angeles. Have you ever heard of Aaron Lewis? Of Stained? I'll say you have. <laughs> yeah. Because I will say, in the immortal words of Aaron Lewis, it's been a while. <laughs> Would you agree? Fuck you, Ryan. All right. And we're off and running. Welcome to the McShank podcast. It's the one you've all been waiting for, everybody. And it's the one that we're all willing to give you. It's our top 10 list of 2021. My God. And guess what? We are here live in person. We've probably given each other COVID three different times since we've since you've been here. But but what variant, Ryan? Ooh. The film variant. No, that doesn't work. We're, I'm, I'm cutting that. Can you have a false start in a podcast <laughs> introduction? <laughs> well. I feel like the ref just blew the whistle and it. I'm automatically disqualified. Which part was the most offensive, I think? Uh, just being here with you, oh, I fair think, enough. Okay. was the most offensive right. part of it. Okay. I've got, you know what? I've gotten that before, so I totally understand I where figured. you're coming from. Uh, but welcome. I'm Ryan. I'm Clayton. And uh, you know us, you love us, and I know you've been clamoring for this episode, and we've been clamoring to try to give it to you and trying to work out all kinds of fun tech issues and living situation, everything. It's all here. We're all got it, but we're here now. We got our beer. We got our water. I think we're ready to rock and fucking roll. I think friend. we are. We did this virtually last year, and... It won't surprise anyone to say it just wasn't quite as much fun, was it? It wasn't the same. We were both getting schwimmity schwammered. You can probably hear it as the episode progresses. But I, I think th- was not even speaking English my last three movies. <laughs> but what like? Oh, but I think it's just it's it's nice to be back. Honestly, it's it's kind of weird that we only had to do one virtually because we recorded 2020 well before covid was even uh, exploding i feel like we was around in january february ish of 2020 when we did the decade and the top 10 of 2021 right we got sent home mid-march yeah at least i did i think a lot of other people did too and we had already just put our decade list and our top 10 of 2019 behind us so we just (laughs) feels like a million missed the quarantine jesus but we're back now we're excited uh it has honestly been a while and uh, uh, ready to get into it. I guess I'm kind of throwing this at you here. Uh, do you have an overview of the year in general? I know you've probably thought about it. You may have talked about it on your letterbox, but um, I don't know. What do you? Where do you feel like this year is 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 falling with uh, the rest of the decade? Well, Ryan, I'm going to take that prompt of yours and curl it up into a ball and just gently set it aside. Because I have a couple observations. I have one observation for you and one question. Okay. So I'm in your home. You are. Your lovely, new, spacious home. Wonderful. And you're wearing a Booksmart t-shirt. And don't think I didn't fucking notice you are here to ridicule me for our polite disagreement on Booksmart. And Ryan, I'm here to tell you. It's still super bad light. Oh my gosh! But but is that a bad thing? I don't really know if that's you're saying a different, lesser version of super bad. I agree with you, but that doesn't mean that that's a bad thing. Okay, I was a little polite. I'll <laughs> leave it there. Okay. So the uh, other, the this other was thing is totally uh, planned. Yeah, it was. Sorry. This, yeah, so I, 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 I knew it was. Okay. And 
hats off and 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 eat it at the same time. You're on my turf now, motherfucker. You can just. <laughs> so the other thing is, leading up to this, I listened to our top ten of the decade podcast again. Okay. And I let you get away with something in that list because I think I was caught up in the moment. Oh. I I should have put you on the spot. Maybe I had COVID brain at that time. You didn't even know it. Maybe I had COVID. Wow, brain and didn't I'm know really it. I'm I'm both curious and scared about so, what this is going to be. For your number ten film of the year, decade of the, of the decade, yeah, you picked Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, Rogue Nation, and Fallout. I, I admit I allowed the cheat. I it snuck in, mm-hmm. but I should have had my own little moment there and told and asked you, mm-hmm. pick a favorite right now. Ooh, pick your favorite, Ryan. Right now? You have to pick one right now. Fallout. Okay. Yep. That's all I wanted to know. Yeah. No. I'm glad we can put a button on that. I'm glad I yeah. can put that behind okay. me because it's been <laughs> bugging me for two years. It wasn't really as bad as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> it never is. So. I kind of thought that you were going to say like, well, your number four was Blade Runner 2049 and I watched it and it sucks. Like, and, no! Jer- and Jared Leto is a pervert psychopath. Uh, but yeah, well, can't argue with that, I guess. That's it. I mean, okay. I'm sure my tone was a little more hostile than what actually just happened <laughs> just, would relay. You were but. really leading up to something that was very scary <laughs> to me. You should know by now. Uh, I know. It's all a facade. It certainly is. Well, well, it's our top 10 movies of 2021. Yeah. We're back under the same roof. Yeah. You want to just get into it? Well, you didn't answer my question. Do I have to? Oh, you're putting it to the side. I will Maybe tell we'll you. Okay. Maybe we'll talk about it at the end. Maybe we'll talk about the end. No, I'll tell you. I'll, okay. I'll give you a little... A little, just a quick little like a little breadcrumb here. Sure. So, this is the weirdest list I've ever put together. Oh, for a few reasons, which won't become clear really until the end of it. Okay. But there are things. There's at least two things on this list that have never made it onto one of our lists in their form. Wow. So I didn't plan for that. That's just how it worked out. Okay. So that's okay. it. That's the only thing. That's I'll the say. crumb. That's the little crumb. Well, that's the crumb. Then I say we just get into it. I think we should. We, we've we've teased them enough. I think it's time to. Uh, All right, let's talk it. about some movies. Let's do it. So my number ten film of twenty twenty one, Ryan. I did it. What'd you do? We were texting about this the other day. Oh God, I put Teton on you my did list. It. <laughs> it's you son of a bitch. I know I'm a sick you bastard. Sick fucker. But Man. T- but Teton is my number ten film of the year. Okay. Okay. I I. It's, I get it. It's number I ten. It. It's I number guess. ten. Okay. Yes can't hold it against me i'm gonna say it's um, before you get into it i'm gonna say that i think the number 10 it can be reserved for a type of movie that you just kind of want to give a shout out outside the box yeah like it's something it's something like the i usually try to think about it as like the best like summer movie or like a summer comedy or something like that um but yeah i yeah you kind of want to just highlight it a little bit so please i want to highlight it julia ducourneau's follow up to her film raw which also made my list back in 2014 a film which took vegetarianism and how shall we say complicated it (laughs) so i'm still wrestling with this movie and what it means not just to me but probably the whole fucking world so titan the story of a show dancer with a troubled disposition (laughs) oh my god and her (laughs) and her subsequent life on the run is an absolutely insane biomechanical exercise in body horror that conceals a subtext that seeks to not only re-examine traditional gender roles, but blow it up entirely. 
<laughs> feminine is masculine. Masculine is feminine. To hell with it all. So the plot of this film should be straight-jacketed. <laughs> Great where, term for it, Where actually. it goes is patently insane. So it's insinuated that our protagonist, Alexia, played by Agatha <laughs> Ruzel, sets fire to her home after locking her biological parents inside. That's in the first 20 minutes, and I think it's barely incidental to how fucked up this movie is. Well, you passed over. There's already a... He's, she's coming home from a murder. She's killed somebody. Oh, I know. <laughs> okay. I know. <laughs> but for some reason, the way they glossed over this looked right. more of a mark to me. Yeah. So it's hyper-violent, provocative, repulsive, taboo, grotesque, morbidly funny amorphous disturbing give me an adjective i'll hurl it at the movie and i think part of it will stick yeah (laughs) i don't even know if i traditionally like this movie or even how much i admire it but there is a strange penetrating pain in me (laughs) that tells me it's going to be seen in retrospect as kind of a landmark film in its own way something that's next generation that's new blood it just had it has this vibe to it that feels like it's a movie 20 years from now for for some reason i can't get that out of my head a i'm hearing and reading of trans people saying that this is the first movie they've ever seen that actually makes them feel seen oh wow which kind of took me aback but when i i have to dance around plot details mm-hmm. to flesh this out a little bit more but considering the idea that something inside of you is foreign to what is on the outside of you. I think when you consider it in that way, those testimonies cannot be written off easily. I think, I think it's in the movie. It's there. I don't think this whole movie works. It's throwing way too much of the screen for it all to stick. It's not as tonally consistent and of the same piece as raw is to me, but it does latch onto you like one of Giger's face huggers from Alien. <laughs> it demands your attention. It pulverizes you. I don't completely buy the character arc. Where this character ends up, her measures to redemption, her humanization, Ducourneau is offering. But something does have to be said for a film that can bury itself this far under your skin. And frankly, just upended me for days. So I, I can fuck with body horror films. Give me Cronenberg any day of the week. Give me Crash. Give me The Fly. Give me Dead Ringers. Give me The Brood. Whatever. But I think this is the first body horror film that's ever actually fucked me back. Wow. Yeah. My number 10 is Teton. That's awesome. Yeah. We. Uh, so there's a... This is going to sound really weird, but in an episode of Seinfeld... <laughs> Kramer, Go on. Kramer... Ends up some, you know, through some madcap thing, ends up posing for a painting where it's a very sort of famous painting of Kramer where he's got his like hands in front and he's looking at and the piece is on display at uh, an art gallery and there's a stuffy old couple that's looking at it and they're looking at it and they're trying to just determine its worthiness and everything. And (laughs) one of the lines they say when they're looking at it is. He's a loathsome, offensive brute, <laughs> yet I can't look away. <laughs> and that's exactly how I felt seeing this movie, watching this film. That is just, how I felt through a lot of it, too. It's just you you are drawn to the things that are that have happened, and you go, well, they certainly that's going to be the, 
capper of everything. And then they go, well, nope, this is now next. And there's a, there's kind of a, an anticipation, a, a through line, a plot point that starts in the very beginning, really. And just sort of like carries through and you're kind of like, how's this going to end? <laughs> How is this going to have to keep going and going and going and all of this? You know what I'm talking about, right? Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, and you're kind of like, wow, wow, are they going to resolve this one? And uh, it, it definitely resolves itself in a way that is consistent completely. Yeah. I told some of my friends, I was like, Hey, I just watched a tan. You should probably see it. It's, you know, but like, beware it's très uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got a message, a DM from my friend and he goes, what the fuck did I just watch with this movie? I was like, I told you, I told you. All right. Well, that's not on my list, but I can definitely see there being like an emotional attachment to it. I can't leave something off that gave me that much of a visceral reaction because most movies just can't do it. I agree. I think that that's a good thing. I had a list like that. It was like when I had Killer Joe on my list. It oh, just like, great film. Yeah. It's just sort of like, but the, I've something I've never seen before, <laughs> really. It still has a chance to shock me. Um, Fried well, chicken, baby. <laughs> Uh, well, going from that to mine, uh, my number 10 is The Green Knight. Mm. And I will say that it is, we just had the Oscar nominations. It's criminal that this movie did not get any summer release, right? Yeah, like kind of late spring, early summer type of thing. Just no love. Like the cinematography in it is absolutely incredible. I'm going to cut you off right there sure. because The Green Knight is my number six okay. movie of the year. Right, so well, we I can, will follow we up can to with whatever about you it, yeah. lay down. Yeah, I mean, it's really just a visual delight. Um, director David Lowry takes this, you know, old yarn, essentially. Did you know that the author is still unknown at this point? 14th century anonymous poem. I can't believe that. That's amazing. But the fact that he was able to take this sort of text that was written in, you know, centuries ago and imbue it with this kind of fairy tale-esque whimsy, almost, sort of you know, filling in those magical gaps, sort of. I think we th we think of the that time as um, almost sort of, you know, fairy tale esque, or you know, oh, there's probably like dragons flying around. You know, you get the Saint George and the dragon thing, and it's very whimsical and very just kind of. But there's just a, a beautiful combination of practical and visual effects. Again, some of the most breathtaking stuff you'll see. Top marks for Dev Patel, who's come a long way from sitting in that chair and. Some dog millionaire, <laughs> but I I'm ready to announce this guy as a movie star if he's not already because he should be. He really should be, but he plays the role of of Gawain, the Sir Gawain, the Green Knight. Um, but he the, though his performance is kind of an alternating sense of wonder and dread, really like wonder in the sense that he's trying to find his place in the world and find his place amongst Ar Arthur and the, the Knights of the Round Table and in this world and I'm like taking over there. But also once the plot kind of gets going, it's kind of like, well, the countdown's on, <laughs> you know? And so he had, and, and the, the movie does a good job of kind of may have to reap what you sow here, buddy. Yeah. Oh no. Um, but this is a real winner for me. I, I, I um, absolutely loved it. And uh, it's definitely one to I'll be picking up on 4k if I, um, haven't already by the time uh, this comes out. Yeah, of all the movies on my list, this is the one I cannot wait to rewatch the most because I think it will just keep unpacking, keep getting richer. It's not an easy movie. It is elliptical and it's plotting. It doesn't spoon feed you, but it has a lot going for it and it's beautifully done. It, 
I think it it's so interested in the ideas of heroism and myth and legend mm-hmm. and kind of deconstructing all three. So most of the movie is this character's journey to <laughs> well, maybe we, maybe I should back up and be like, how did he get in this position? Right, really, yeah. Really quick, because what's it's the really yeah? If you don't know funny. the story of it, yeah, so, for so, sure. It, it, but it's so perfectly yeah. like weird and like okay, this was for sure written the million years ago. <laughs> so Dev Fidel's character, he's kind of this wannabe knight. He wakes up on Christmas Day, goes to a dining hall celebration, and this mysterious tree branch, creaky mossy character called the green knight just shows up and throws a challenge at the feet of anyone who will take it it is if anyone can land a blow on me then you will basically be rewarded with all the privileges that entails but exactly a year from now you will have to come meet me on my own terms i'll tag you back and basically get what's coming to you and so Dev Fatel's character, you know, this is very, very early on, not spoiling much, takes the challenge and lands the first blow, but it's not very met with not met with very much resistance. The head gets lopped clean off, and while Dev Fatel's character is reeling in victory, the knight's body proceeds to get up, pick up its severed head, cradle it under its arm. And then gallop off, gallop off yeah. on horseback. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> so, yeah, there's going to be something waiting for this character at the end or other end of the movie. And I do love how the rest of the movie is kind of just a lot of moral and ethical challenge that are put in our character's way to test if he is actually a hero or not, if he has the stuff of legend. And I think what I appreciate the most here is that. This movie is not at all interested in the well-being of its characters. It is operating on on a level that's much higher where this world for all its fantastical elements does have consequences. And if you move if you put a wrong foot in this world, it will eat you up. The the scene with the giants. Mhm. It, what do you call a group of giants? Is it a gaggle? Yeah, sure. <laughs> a baseball team. <laughs> yeah, but that that to me was more wide-eyed and awe-inspiring than anything in Dune, which Dune, a movie I like quite a bit. It that, may make an appearance Yeah, that, that took me back. Like, that was masterful in the way that they framed that. But you always think, but it's crazy that you feel like you've seen everything, you know, you feel like, Oh, nothing, you know, with Tatane and everything. It's craft, man. Yeah. It just, it's, it's like, wow, this craft, this that is gets that. scope. This has stakes. This has size and grandeur and everything. And yeah. So, yeah, I love the, yeah. vi- there's a lot of cool visual flourishes. I think one of the best and most snub supporting actress turns all of all of the whole year. It belongs to Alicia Vikander yep. in a, a very complicated role, but a very meaningful role. And yeah, I'm right on board with you. The Green Knight was my number six. I hope everyone seeks it out. She's good in everything. Like, honestly, like you look at her thing, like even maybe the movies that aren't as good that she's in, she's still great in like, oh, Man from Uncle. She's yeah, we're great. Danish girl, like Academy Award winning. Um, I mean, I guess she did the anyway, the the uh, Lara Croft picture, but <laughs> that was probably did, for her. <laughs> did you see it? Did anybody? Did you see that? We saw it. Yeah. I was wondering if anybody saw yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, it was fine. <laughs> 
Um, all right. Well, what's your number nine? Great. First case of overlap early on. Heyo. My number nine is No Time to Die. Ooh. Kerry Joji Fukunaga. I got to warn you, my first three movies right up front are what I would like to call messy complications that I just still love because of what they're trying to do. They really did, for sure. I'm so already on board with you, yeah. This is the last of the Craig run. God damn it. Thank you, MGM. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Sam Mendes. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Martin Campbell. And now thank you, Kerry Joji Fukunaga. Casino Royale is still at the top of the mountain, I think, as most people would admit. But this is a more than honorable swan song to the mm-hmm. Craig Bond. This is really two films, I think, not just in its blistering length, <laughs> but also in the, in the scope. Like, the first half kind of wants to thrill you with an old-fashioned James Bond story told in 2021 cashing in on the stylish and weary gravitas of Daniel Craig for one final curtain call. And the second half, which is where I think most of the <laughs> objections will come out of the woodwork, I think it, resol- it revolves around the James Bond of the new, where he's vulnerable, he's layered, character-based, he's emotional. He's a post-9-11 Bond that mm-hmm. probably has more in common with an amnesiac Jason Bourne <laughs> than he does with villainous lairs, cheeky one-liners, right. eccentric villains, and nuclear physicists named Christmas who look like Denise Richards. <laughs> but if you've seen the film, you'll know that at least half of what I just said is in there too. So cheers to you, Fukunaga. Yeah. What I really love about this movie, it delivers on the action, lustful espionage, the glamour. Tell me, is there anyone out there who didn't have the most devious smirk on their face during the whole Cuba set piece? Oh, it's amazing. Like, so give fun. Give me that as the whole movie. Like, so fun. Get them in, the, in a movie together. Anna de Armas, you delicious, clumsy, <laughs> lethal vixen minx. <laughs> Come back into my 007 universe anytime you damn well please. Are we allowed to call women delicious anymore? I'm not sure we are. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Number two. Confirmed. It's a determinately old-fashioned movie at least in terms of what we think of as a blockbuster. I think the word I keep going back to with No Time to Die is tactile. So not only with the Italian scene shot in all their natural beauty and splendor, but even just with tension. Like one of my favorite scenes is when Craig is holed up in that Scandinavian forest for a shootout, and he's walking amongst these impossibly large labyrinthine ferns, which kind of harken back to just epics that feel like you can touch them to me. Like you feel like you can reach out to the screen and and actually touch what's on screen. And I can't tell you how refreshing that is in 2021 with all of our CGI infused blockbusters. And I work in VFX. (laughs) So I hope that carries a little more weight to it. So (laughs) no, you're just hoping we need more visual effects. Yes. More. Yes. (laughs) Tasteful visual effects is all you'll ever get out of me. Green Knight visual effects. Right. Exactly. And the added bonus of Bond, not only just out-muscling his adversaries, but he's outsmarting them, too. I just fucking love that. He's using his natural surroundings to his advantage. Ryan, that is a 21-year scotch for me. So this is a proper Hollywood production, large, in charge, and it actually makes me believe in their power not only just to entertain, but just to fucking exist at all finally the risks this movie takes so no spoilers here but this story was pushed to its furthest and most logical conclusions 
while saving kind of an inspired narrative gut punch for the very end just to seal it all. But this is a huge swing from Kerry Fuganaga and MJM. And I think in some ways their reach did exceed their grasp with mm-hmm. the movie. What this movie has to deliver in its runtime, excessive as it is, is still too much by probably like 40%. Yeah. <laughs> but I was just overwhelmed by the courage of even trying to pull it off. But in spite of all that, in spite of the bloat, in spite of Leah Sedu having probably a tenth of the chemistry oh of my God. Eva Green that she does well, with and, Bond, and, right? And also <laughs> kind of uh, nebulous villain motives really you're kind of like well what are you really going you know that that was kind of my i kind of have sympathy for rami malik because i don't think he's giving a great performance but i also don't think the movie is that that interested in him either as a villain no 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 so and and, and that's set up what they're going to do with bond yeah they need a foil he has to be there right and the age difference between him and Seydoux as established in the prologue doesn't make any sense, really. But, God, how fucking good was that prologue? It's like so good. Bond by way of horror mm-hmm. that, we, that we never knew that yeah. we wanted. Uh, yeah, this movie actually left me moved, in a way, at least through the end credits. And, hey, that's just fine with me. <laughs> yeah, no, we're gonna, we'll just start hey. all over again in a couple of years, I'm sure. Cheers to you, Daniel Craig, and thanks for the good times. Yeah. Didn't make my list, but I I agree with uh, everything you said for sure. It's definitely, uh, it's nice to see big swings. And I think that, again, even if you don't make contact, at least you went for it. You know, went for it. And and I think that that in in this sort of realm of blockbusters where we are, of just playing to, you were talking about Star Wars, like just down the line, you want to try to get as many people as you can on board. But like, no, they're like, hey, this movie's three hours. If you won't, fuck you if you don't like it you know like we're gonna do everything we can to make the movie that we want to make the blockbuster that we want so i i right. really do appreciate that for sure yeah and just a definitive ending yeah. seems so radical in today's yeah. franchise based right landscape so good good pick my number nine is actually one that i did not expect to make it before i saw it and it's spencer oh pablo I- lorraine um taking on again one of modern history's greatest women kind of pulling back the curtain a little bit to reveal a sort of uh, a more upsetting center that is advertised of course he also directed 2016's jackie uh another movie i liked yeah and i you know he definitely has a, a specific style i think that he's definitely going for but it the film takes place over the Christmas holiday in 1991's Great Britain and follows Kristen Stewart's Princess Diana as she weaves through bureaucracy in the royal family while trying to hold her sanity together. Um, but things are not looking too hot for old Diana at this particular point in time. Her husband doesn't love her and actually actively loves somebody else. Her childhood home is gone. Her own mother-in-law is uh, maybe, probably, plotting to kill her. Um and she almost has a nanny played uh, by Timothy Spall following her around, making sure all of these ar- arcane traditions are upheld. Oh, we need to weigh a- everybody when they come into the palace for Christmas. Um, the only thing she seems to have in her life is the love of her children and her to them. Uh, a maid named Maggie played wonderfully as usual by Sally Hawkins and the head chef of the house played by Sean Harris. Those are probably my favorite moments when she's kind of interacting with them. But uh, I mean, this is essentially a Pablo Lorraine horror film. 
I mean, the the aspect of with crumpets, <laughs> yes, like uh, there are like echoes of the past haunting her at every turn. You know, there's close-ups. There are times when you're sort of disoriented, when you're kind of in her mind about what is real and what is not. And I think part of what I liked about those moments with Maggie and with I forget the the chef's name, but um, on on the chef, yeah. It kind of speaks to how suffocating this whole movie is just in microcosm with that chef whenever they cut to him. Because mm-hmm. when he's telling his staff what the dinner is going to be yeah. for that night, he may as well be ordering a bunch of men to take the hill. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. It's intense. Do not fuck this up. Do not fuck yeah, this well, up. I mean, why w- yeah. You have to kind of know that, I think, when your brain, oh, I'm serving the royals. Like, I can't, you know, burn my crumpets or whatever. But... Um, like, I don't know how you make crumpets, but like, I, I, it almost sort of feels like the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present. It almost feels like the, her interactions when she's one-on-one with somebody don't really, f- or y- if, if you found out at the end of it, that the, those people were not real at all, that Maggie didn't exist, that the chef was not real. You'd be like, Oh, I get that. Like that it, it totally fits in with the aesthetic and the genre of this movie. Um, but it's punctuated all by, of course, the master Johnny Greenwood. Uh, masterfully subtle score that hits all the literal right notes. Um, but it isn't. I really just love that interesting genre switching take because this must have been a fucking nightmare to live in and to be a part of. And you don't really know what you're kind of getting into when a prince asks you to be a literal princess. You don't really kind of think about. And she was what, like nineteen or twenty when they super got, young, so young, and you just sort of think, well, I get to be a princess, so great. But thinking about all the things that come with that, and just like the crushing, and just sort of like everything, all your responsibilities, and you just are not yourself. You belong to the crown. You are not your own person. So exploring that in kind of a horror genre, you know, it's not body horror, but it's very much sort of creeping terror kind of thing. Um, it's a really, really interesting way to, to do it. And Kristen Stewart is great in it. And I think a well-deserved Oscar nod for her. And not the worst English accent I've ever no. heard. And she actually kind of sounds like her, too. I yeah. think there's. I think she did a really good job. And you can tell. And, I mean, it's funny to think about what we thought about Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson even, too. At she the was t- nominated for Best Actress this year. Yeah. And I would have thought Pattinson would have got there first based on their roles. Mm-hmm. But they're both taking insanely ambitious roles with yeah. very good directors, so it was only a matter of time. It honestly seems kind of like they both agreed, we're just going to do this, we'll do like 50%, half-assed, we'll get paid a bunch of cash, you know, five or six years, then we're out, we've made all the money we need, and then we can just do whatever we want. And that's so cool that they both have kind of taken on the mantle of and really shed whatever was in the past, because I don't think you could have predicted any of this when the last film, the last Twilight film came out, you'd be kind of like, well, they could just follow the stories of they're just going to be in franchises or they're just going to kind of be in these. They're going to be in abduction with Taylor Lautner. Well, yeah, I did say they all, they didn't all make it. (laughs) (laughs) Two out of three ain't bad. Two out of three ain't bad. But to be able to, to, to see her, I mean, I mean, anything. She's very interesting. Her roles that she takes on, and the, she's very interesting in them. Oh, she's you, worked with Olivia Aseos now. Yeah. she's worked with. Oh God, there's another filmmaker I'm blanking on, but her roles are just very small. Yeah, introspective, character based. Did you see Underwater? 
No, but I wanted to. So it, it's a movie where you're just kind of, I mean, that, that movie goes places where you also would not expect, but it's just like a very, it's a similar type of thing where you're like, you would think it would, it, she could just play it straight down the line and it would just be kind of like, oh, an underwater kind of quick and cheap franchise movie. But no, she actually puts a, a bunch of work in because of really, really good performances. So um, good on Kristen Stewart. And good on Spencer for my number nine. Yeah, I like this film quite a bit, and it just missed my list, but I'm fully behind Spencer. My number eight is, well, it continues my streak of three films in a row that I found strangely intoxicating for one reason or another, and maybe can't entirely defend. Uh, It's So what do you get when you combine a Bo Burnham-like stand-up comedian with a whirlwind romance with an opera singer, some tabloid frenzy, a little bit of celebrity worship, transitions between reality and artifice, a Natalie Wood-like murder, a soundtrack by Sparks, and a wooden puppet baby that gets slowly more human as the movie progresses. You get a weird fever dream of a movie, and that movie is called Annette. Annette well is done. my number eight. I, I'm very happy I saw Edgar Wright's documentary the sparks brothers earlier this year and was i thought it was going to be on my list for sure when we got to sit down here but didn't quite make it but i'm happy i had that grounding because it did kind of provide the wacky foundation that i needed to really get on their wavelength the brothers ron and russell male who consist of sparks and have one of the, have had one of the more stranger careers where they've been kind of always just hiding in plain sight over the span of several decades i mean they're in their 70s now but they've been releasing albums since the late 60s and just reinventing themselves just every crazy few years like oh this this didn't this doesn't work anymore okay we got to change it and do something else and they still are able to make it make it work yeah it's amazing they do, they've always kind of been musicians musicians so i hear whenever people who are musicians well that's what they say whenever they talk about them is like they're kind of this this secret hiding in plain sight with the, the musician community that they just have a love for this band but so the rousing opening number of Leos Carax's Annette starts with the best song in the movie. It's called So May We Start. So May We Start. It just destroys the wall between artist and audience for one glorified extended take. And it's honestly the last time we see the characters in this movie happy. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Altogether, yeah. yeah. Thinking back on it, yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. It, it's not really a proper musical so much as it a movie of spoken music kind of if, 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 if that's a distinction and after that opening number i think the songs are more hit and miss but what never really budges is the audaciousness of carax's direction and just there's like a faux beauty to its art design which kind of can be taken as a negative but i mean it here is like in the best sense of the word there's this stunning sequence where our opera singer played by my girl Marianne Cotillard, where she's performing on stage and we're kind of, the camera's in the perspective of the audience looking on stage and she has this forest backdrop behind her. And we cut to the reverse when that we're, we're behind her now and then she starts wandering backwards into an actual forest to finish the number. And the effect was so disorienting, so transfixing, so beautiful. I love that touch. And there's also, there's a pivotal scene on a cruise ship where plot really starts kicking into gear and it 
there's like charmed romance in the air, but also kind of tragedy lurking silently by as uh, her husband and comedian played by Adam Driver or the, <laughs> what would John Oliver call him? Like a, a slice of bison meat or something yeah. like that. <laughs> well, one of many things. One of many I'm things sure. he would call him. What are you him. doing? Why are you yeah. doing this to me? <laughs> but Why this, are you calling me? But this scene just lays such beautiful groundwork for this kind of slow descent into degeneration. The Their child, a puppet character named Annette, just holds so much symbolic weight throughout the movie until the very end where it gets a little more literal for a really surprisingly tender and moving scene that I absolutely love. It This movie just puts you on like a, like a spin cycle of, of like wild camera moves, these like splashy emotions and just kind of this colorful fantasia. It doesn't all work. I think some of the songs miss and, I think Driver reaches the extent of his singing range on more than one occasion where it works so good in Marriage Story because it was just well within that wheelhouse. But what he's asked to do here is a little more complicated and doesn't always work, I think. But you will be hard-pressed to find a movie that works, or that is, takes more risks this year and with than Annette, and I loved it. Yeah, I uh, I agree with that it was, again, unlike anything you've really ever seen, frankly. And I wish I could watch like a super cut of it. I wish I could watch like a 40 minute version of it. I don't know if I necessarily needed it for two plus hours because uh, it kind of started to like weigh on me a little bit. And I think the songs, maybe you're probably right. Like some of them are hits and misses, but I mean, really it's all kind of driven uh, pun intended <laughs> by his, by Adam driver's performance. I mean, the guy like I've seen so many things these days about because there's so much discourse just in the world about the role of a comedian and the role. It's like, what the fuck? When did this happen? And so I remember some, seeing somebody posted like, you know, who really can probably talk to you about what comedians are in this world. And it was just a picture of him in a bathroom <laughs> movie. And it's like, oh, yeah, of course. Like, so honestly, of the three films that he was in this year, I thought this performance probably had the best chance of, of him of garnering a nomination just because mm-hmm. it was so out there and so i mean but he just is so believable and just sort of grabs you by the throat and you're like okay well whatever you say man like it's it, he, he's very very aggressive and very very like commanding of his sport and his you know of everything but um can we all just say can we get out of the way that by far his best singing performance in his <laughs> yeah, career, I was just gonna say. is please, Mr. Kennedy from Inside <laughs> okay. Lewin Davis. Okay, never mind. I was gonna say we, there was a, there's another sequence where nope, nope, nope incorrect. Nope. Okay, it's, it's please, it's Mr. Kennedy. Outer, outer space. <laughs> <laughs> Who wrote this? I did. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I, I I agree that it's it's definitely a visually arresting. Like it's it's something that you just have never seen in your life. Before. I don't know if you ever saw Holy Motors. I did not. That movie is on its own plane of fucking weirdness, but this movie is believe it or not way more accessible <laughs> than Holy Motors is. But it's a again, it's a huge swing. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I don't think that I think when you hire someone like Sparks and Leos Carrix, if it didn't turn out the way that it did, you'd probably be like, "Well, I'm disappointed." If you're a fan of either of them. Yeah. So, it just is like, well, you know, you you, you 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 get what you get with with that so um solid yeah enjoyable but not like you know 
yeah it definitely has its warts but i yeah I definitely agree with it enjoyable sure. plus warts yes well my number eight is my first foray into the world and work of jane campion and it's oh. the power of the dog uh i get the hype now i didn't you know i have never seen the piano i mean she's her work is a little bit um old or a little bit older for me i didn't obviously i was really young when the piano came out but um but nobody outside of i think denis villeneuve this year or really any year has made so little look so good i mean the staggering breadth of like the open range is just on like full display here like you're just shooting just these beautiful mountain vistas of just nothing for hundreds of miles around you. And it's just some of the most gorgeous scenery that you'll see all year. New Zealand, surprisingly. Like crazy. Um, but obviously the all-star ensemble cast, Benedict Cumberbatch, Kirsten Dunst, Jesse Plemons, Cody Smith-McPhee. I mean, right there, I think even though you don't have a Best Ensemble Academy Award, the fact that every major player in the movie got their own nomination <laughs> says a lot. Um but Cumberbatch plays a character named Phil Burbank, which is like Truman's grandfather. What? Uh, he kind of <laughs> lords over the majority of this film, his literal height and also his presence. His bow-leggedness. Yeah, it's just, I mean, he's just like a figure that is just like, I am just, he just casts a shadow on the rest of the production. Um, but he set up, the, they set up the type of person that he is pretty brilliantly in an early scene when he, him and his men are traveling uh, on the open range and they stop at a hotel slash restaurant that's run by Kirsten Dunst. And there's an early scene where he takes some paper flowers that Cody Smith McPhee you find out later has made. And rather than admiring them, just kind of makes fun of them and then burns them. You're like, Oh, this guy is the biggest asshole in the world. <laughs> like he just really is. Um, but, uh, you know, there's there's no greater film this year that describes the phrase slow burn than this one. I mean, the performances and the plot kind of keep you engaged, but it's just is constantly building and building and building on, on, on it and absolutely just sort of builds to this just killer ending, really. Um, but it's not something that you're going to just get slam bang action or you're not really going to – it's not going to give you much, I think, for the first – hour and a half or so um, and then it really kind of kicks in at a, after a, a reveal later on um, I really really wish I'd gotten a chance to see this in the theater I know they played it at the New Beverly in January and I really wanted to go um, but I really like seeing something like this even on as nice of a TV as you and I both have it still doesn't quite compare I think it's just seeing it in the theater and seeing these gigantic you know large vistas on screen um, you know, Netflix's main foray into the prestige film game. Um, and uh, nominated for 12 Academy Awards. I think that, that maybe was a little excessive. Maybe a few, few too many. I would not have thought that this one would have been the one that led all nominations. So, uh, so Power of the Dog is my number eight. Yeah, beautifully shot, beautifully acted. But I kind of got to play the contrarian on this one Please. a little bit. It didn't live up to the hype for me but what i the issues i have with it are not so debilitating to where i just flat out dislike it i'm probably just very middle of the road on it the 
the ending you mentioned, yeah, it was a nice little twist. I wasn't familiar with the source material at all. And it definitely makes sense in the source of the world, but that's not really the story in this movie that I was latching on to. It was building toward more of a redemption story for Cumberbatch's character, right? Mm -hmm. And what it leaves us with, I think, is just not really as interesting to me. It definitely pulls the rug out from under us, but what's left in that void, I I don't like it as much as where I thought it was going. Well, I think that it also changes a lot of your opinion for the previous, you know, hour and 40 minutes or something like that. Because when we, when we watched it, one of the first things that Casey said about it was, she was like, man, that kind of, I'm glad that what happened happened because now you're, you're, you're kind of wanting this to occur essentially. And so you can sort of relax when you know <laughs> what's going to happen really. And kind of, cause you're just on edge for a lot of it of like, when is this guy, you know, whatever. But um, yeah, but yeah, it, it definitely, I mean, I think that just the filmmaking, it, I was really just enthralled by it, frankly. I mean, even it's a beautifully made movie. Yeah. Even watching it at home, you know, and like I try to, when I watch stuff at home, I just, I try to act like I'm in a theater. It's just like no phone, like just, you know, I'm going to try to do as best I can to try to like really sink into it. So um, yeah, yeah it kept me going, kept me interested. Yeah. The, the critique on toxic masculinity here, I just, it's a little too like just on the surface for me. And it's, it's not really all that surprising or shocking considering it's 1925 Montana, you know? So it, it didn't have that kind of, it didn't have that, that broke back mountain feel for me where I thought it was really like, sh- it was, shattering some much needed taboos you know i thought it was all kind of a little too a little too cutesy a little too obvious i I didn't like that the there's one major supporting character that kind of just fucks off for most of the movie and i think his being gone was pretty convenient for the story because he's so present in the first third and then a lot of things happen i think in effect because he's not there so that bothered me a little bit and I don't know. That was kind of, I didn't really buy Kirsten Dunn's descent into alcoholism, but there's a little, little nitpicks here and there, but it's like, I can agree with you. I'll meet you halfway. Sure. It, was a, it was a beautifully made and beautifully. Acted oh yeah, movie, for sure. For sure. That will probably be rewarded handsomely in a month or so. I agree. Uh, my number we on seven. Mm-hmm. My number seven is being the Ricardo's. So I'm a little taken back at the lukewarm reception to this movie because I think it meets out fair enough, actually uh, enough electric current, I would say, to go with any and all laughs that you might expect from the movie. I I have no qualms playing the contrarian for this, as you just <laughs> found out on the last movie, but I, I didn't think that I was going to be a contrarian on this movie about the couple of a famous sitcom... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of set up to where you're like, wow, how can this movie fail? Like, how, how can it go wrong? Look at all everybody's involved. You have a classic sitcom, a filmmaker, this cast. Like, yeah, it just, yeah. I, I almost feel like people were expecting a different movie, one which kind of soared on the vibe of Lucy and Ricky from I Love Lucy when, no, that's not this movie. This is the story of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. And it's a much more abrasive and politically volatile story than maybe you thought going in. And it kept me much more glued to the screen than something like the well-meaning but kind of 
meandering, you know, licorice pizza from Paul Thomas Anderson. I mean, maybe what's the like what would the equivalent be of for eyes for having a tin ear? Would it be a glass eye? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I have a fucking glass eye and I didn't know it. But I think this movie's pretty good. It uh the script hums along, it occasionally crackles. I think Sorkin puts just enough of himself keeps just enough of himself outside of the characters, which he kind of gets criticized for a lot. I think he knows when to dial up the nostalgia at the right moments. They're kind of like silver bullets in his gun. But from the earliest scene in this movie around a table read, it establishes itself as being kind of interested more in the people behind the facade that everybody would see on their TV once a week at that time. Nicole Kidman's Lucille Ball, who looks nothing like Lucy with her hair down, but I think when her hair is up, they actually kind of pull it off a little bit. Like she looks a little more like an acceptable facsimile than with her hair down. <laughs> yeah. 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 We'll talk about it. Okay. So I think her cadence switch between Lucy and Lucille on and off the show is perfect. And by all accounts, how it was, I like that she's this creative, stubborn, impulsive perfectionist, in the movie at a time when women probably weren't allowed to be so. I like Javier Bardem's take on Desi Arnaz, of whom he looks absolutely nothing fucking like. But he's charming, he's whip smart, he's a shrewd businessman, and he realizes that even at that time, with all of his success, he's a Cuban first, a war hero second, and an American third. (laughs) I love that plot thread in the movie. I like the framing device of condensing some of the more turbulent times in the life of their marriage into a week that is kind of all centering around an episode where there's a major creative dispute and Lucy wants her way. They don't want to give it to her, all the fireworks that come from that. Well, that and other things, too, that are going on. (laughs) Yeah, so there's... In the world. So the C word in this movie is not so tied into bodily anatomy as more Joseph McCarthy. (laughs) Ah, you're a rat, huh, kid? Get the fuck off my screen. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I I do like the whole there's just some nuance to that story that I I found quite interesting you know like everyone wanted her to capitulate to fabricate what she did but you know she did what she did not because she's a communist but because she was trying to make her grandfather happy you know who like worked for them and supported them all that I thought it was fine and yeah I didn't think that Sorkin's dialogue really fell flat through most of the movie I have some issues with some of the narrative choices like the talking heads they cut to occasionally and that kind of thing but this is my favorite script of his since he co-authored Moneyball and I mean Steve Jobs also had a lot of good punch to it I know it was high on your list that year it's a fun and entertaining ride down some of the more dimly lit corridors I think of Hollywood glitz and glamour and it's behind all the saccharineness and syrup and I, I never really stopped loving Lucy but I felt like I knew Lucille after this movie and yeah. as, co- as, as corny as that is i i got that out of it for sure and i think that was the stated objective i think it was not to and i think he did a good job in the press tour and stuff like that of saying well this isn't going to be a movie about putting together i love lucy or about an episode you know it's not going to be what you think it is um and but i also kind of wish that it was i guess <laughs> like the 
the narrative choices you talked about, those talking heads, go away. Like, uh, what are you making? Are you making a documentary or are you making... Because the people that he even chooses to be the older versions are not even the real people <laughs> that they're interviewing. So it's like, why even go... Why even yeah, do that? I agree. I could have done without I that. Just do without. Just cut it out. Like, we can... The things that you're telling me in the in the flashback or in, like, the, the talking head could be easily have been done on in at the time, like, in the script. You could have mm-hmm. done that. But I think the... I, while I think, I mean, obviously the cast is great. It's a, it's a tough thing because it's kind of similar. So like when Ali came out, okay. I was talking to my dad about Ali, like when it was out or something. And he's just like, a Muhammad Ali in the sixties and seventies was like the most famous person, like in the world, like the most recognizable person in the world. And it's tough to make a movie about him. That isn't him, you know, like, Will Smith is doing a good job in this movie, but he's clearly not Muhammad Ali. And so that that was sort of rattling around in my brain when I saw it being the Ricardos is like Lucy and Desi are these just iconic people in American anything culture, not even like cinema or television or anything. It's just American culture. You've se- everybody's seen the million hours of I Love Lucy. Yeah, but there's been successful biopics around well, no, but larger than I mean, life characters. But I, well, but to that level, it's tough for me to just be like. I'm just going to lose myself no matter how good the performance okay. was. I'm just, it's tough for me to sort of square that circle of like, okay, this is not that, them. That's the difference. then, yeah, cause right. yeah, I, I was able to get lost in it. Yeah. And I, and I guess the, I, I, I do like the, the narrative structure that they picked. Okay. Let's just pick a week and let's, you know, the lead up to it and all the little bits oh, and pieces. Entire in there. life biopics are always a bad choice. Right. Can't do it. But, to learn later on that not even everything happened in those in that particular week that you had to take so many liberties to be able to make this dramatic when I can't tell if he's trying to be like realistic or he's not trying to tell it the way that it exactly was was a little bit tricky for me to kind of get on board with learning later that okay well no this didn't happen this particular week and this didn't ha- you know um, that kind of thing can bother me I think in Bohemian Rhapsody, well, probably yeah, the worst a... movie ever nominated for Best Picture. <laughs> it offended me the most because it was dealing with <laughs> some aspects of Freddie Mercury's right. life that you should just not fuck with. Mm-hmm. Even way more personal, I would argue, than what's going on here with Lucille Ball. Sure. Uh, yeah, it, it, the framing device didn't bother me too much. Though. Okay, and I think that that's kind of where I had a hard time losing myself in the whole world. And just building up the fact that you know, they are going to stick together. Um, these two are, are an unshakable pair and they're going to, you know, attack everything that they can together. And they do such a, a, they just hammer home the fact that these two love each other and they're business people, but they're also a romantic pair as well. And then seeing what happens in the end, talk about pulling the rug out from under you, where it's just like you spent two hours building up this thing and then it just kind of like oh nope it's different now and you're like well what why what (laughs) like i know that's how it actually happened but i think just but but it but it really did it it really did a number on they really were like these two are a pair and they Mm -hmm. meet at the top of mulholland because she's going to work and he's coming home from the club you know like trying to find little bits and pieces that there are real like hollywood power couple and then it just be like just kidding like that that part of it was just kind of like oh okay well no i mean i i think it was it was being honest, I think. I mean, that's all that the, the source, you know, the families of these people asked out of Aaron Sorkin was to just be honest with this story. And I think that's 
kind of where it was at the time. Maybe not in the particular order that the movie presents it in, but that was a warts and all look at that yeah. couple, and I appreciated it. I think that it always kind of, it's been, it comes back to it, and I think it's the same thing. I think I felt it more in Trial of the Chicago 7 than I did with this one, but he just shouldn't direct his own scripts. Mm. I just think he needs to focus on one and not both. So get, I mean, Steve Jobs, I mean, that's, you know, great yeah. script, and they bring in somebody who can add a flair to it, and it's not sort of like, because with Aaron Sorkin, who's he going to highlight? fucking Aaron Sorkin right. so like <laughs> yeah. you know you're gonna have Eddie Redmayne standing up in at the uh, in in the in the courtroom uh, and a little you know, schmaltzy it was a little schmaltzy a little but schmaltzy but I, I maybe could have been handled with a little bit more tact I would think but that's when there's I'm about, yeah. always gonna be a little more theatricality with a Sorkin script than you do with your average you get with your average and I script. love Aaron Sorkin yeah. that's the thing of like, course you are telling you are you are preaching to the choir yeah. I am a Sorkin apologist for sure yeah but this one just didn't really grab me I think mm-hmm. uh, as some of the others did. Yeah, it's weird when you see a movie that apparently no one else saw. Nobody else saw. But, uh, but I'm sticking with it. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. You're really getting out there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, my number seven. Was that condescending? No. Okay. It wasn't. Okay. It wasn't. You're allowed, okay. you're allowed to like what you okay. like. Okay. okay. My number seven is The Last Duel, currently on HBO Max. I repeat, this movie is on HBO Max. I have now done more for this film's release than Disney did. <laughs> I have now I've now told you more about That will be reiterated. That theme will be reiterated further down in my Oh list. my god. This was actually my preferred Ridley Scott release of the last 3 months. Although I will couch it. <laughs> this movie's good. With yeah, with the fact that if I was going to watch this or House of Gucci again, I would probably pick House of Gucci. This one is, you know, it's just kind of like, ugh. I mean, it, it ends up kind of sticking in your craw in a good way, um, but I just can't get enough of freaking Super Mario, Jared Leto, and House of Gucci. No, it's a pink. I use a pink and a brown. It's a good. Didn't see it. Didn't oh, see okay. it. But now I'm definitely not going to see it. For sure. <laughs> you, it, it's pretty insane. But anyway, this is based on a, I guess it's supposedly a true story that was supposedly and apparently meticulously researched. I don't doubt that the guy who wrote the book did the work. I just have some doubts about the quality of the record keeping and the, 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 the I know there was probably some ga- a lot of gaps that needed to be filled in, but the mere fact that there's even anything about this tiny little thing that happened hundreds of years ago is pretty crazy. But it's told in the Rashomon style with various players in each story kind of getting a cut of their version of the story. And so the final segment, which focuses on Jodie Comer's Marguerite de Carouge. I just love the way Adam Driver says it. De Carouge. De Carouge. Uh, I love the way that they called it simply the truth. And that was, I thought, really, really affecting. Um, but this film is uh, famously a reteaming of Ben Affleck and Matt Damon as writers. But at least with this film, Nicole Holof Center gets the screenwriting credit that William Goldman did not get on Goodwill Hunting as the writer and is able to kind of bring all of these pieces together because she reportedly did a pass on the script and also wrote the Marguerite segment. Um, what starts kind of as a film where the men in Marguerite's life take over her story and tell it the way that best suits them. Something that I chuckle at is in Adam Driver's version of the story is 
the version where Matt Damon just cannot get on the horse. Mm-hmm. I find that so funny because it's like, of course, he thinks this guy is a bumbling idiot. So, of course, he's going to just that's his going to be re- his recollection of it is like, oh, this guy can't even get on his own goddamn horse. Like, I thought that was so funny, but it kind of slowly morphs into one that frames both driver and Matt Damon's characters as sort of buffoons and just terrible, really, in their own ways. Um, fast forward 30 seconds. I'm going to spoil this movie because there's a point about it that I want to make. Uh, but Matt Damon ends up winning the titular duel in an extremely gruesome way that only Ridley Scott can come up with and shoot. No one does this shit better oh, than Ridley he Scott. Does. It's just like watching Gladiator again. It was great. Um, but the scene that directly follows that I feel like is so important and encapsulates kind of all of the, what I've been saying, and it's just so powerful. So the story is that Damon was fighting Driver to prove that his wife was telling the truth about being raped by Adam Driver. And in this fucked up, patriarchal, weird, like old-timey England way, they have to have a duel, and the winner of the duel then determines whether or not she was lying or not. Like, that's just, I can't even imagine. But once he's victorious, they're riding through the city, Marguerite and Matt Damon's character, Bigouge, um, and uh, essentially, like... Matt Damon is this sort of conquering hero almost like he's come home from this giant battle, but really all he's done is just <laughs> driven a knife, a, a freaking sword through Adam driver's face. But like, but more importantly, I think he was really only defending his own honor. So there. that's my point. That's, that's exa- I'm sorry. No, 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 you're fine. No, no, fine. Yeah. That's absolutely exactly what I'm. Yeah. But like, he is the conquering hero. He's the one that's accepting all of the praise and everybody's praising him. But really it's like the struggle for truth and the honor of his wife was always about him. It was never about her at all. And kind of a shame that not much has really changed. Frankly, it's a little bit of a, of well, a disappointment. I think I, I like this movie quite a bit as well. It did mm-hmm. not make my list, but it was definitely vying for number 11. And what this movie's doing so well is I think it reminded me of when Bill Burr was on some late night show. It might have been Conan or yeah. something like that. And he's just talking about shit in his day that's happened recently. And he goes, you know, so I was driving around and I saw this bumper sticker on the back of a car. It said, believe women. And I thought to myself, all of them? <laughs> So that got a huge laugh out of me. And I think it actually is a very salient point, too, at how much kind of our language around this kind of thing has been cheapened and robbed of of nuance. Because I think what that bumper sticker is trying to say, something a little more long form like this movie is actually saying so much better. Because, yeah, I mean, the morality in this movie is is easy. It's, you know, what, 13th century France. Like, we're not expecting the woman to get any kind of a platform in this scenario. But I think the strength in it does lie in that nuance that you just enumerated there where it's like, yeah, okay, this woman, you know, she's favorably positioned at the end of this film. Like, you know, it kind of goes her way. But what is that way, really? Yeah. At what cost has, beca- this, because has this happened? Yeah. I mean, and, and yeah, we're we're totally spoiling this movie for people who haven't seen it yeah. so i apologize to that but I, I feel like you can't talk about the, the, <laughs> the inner workings of it you unless really. you unless you really kind of get into it no, so you, you can't really keep fast forwarding 30 seconds we <laughs> don't do 30 seconds here. She, multiple minutes she yes they, they win but what is her prize you know to be 
this brood mare for her brute of a husband who could care two shits about what she thinks as a woman yeah. or, or if she's achieving any kind of pleasure during their romantic scenes that's where the strength of this movie lies which is also a really fucked up thing in the movie like did you enjoy the sex did you enjoy you because get, if you didn't no it means you're lying you can't get pregnant you can't get pregnant i don't whoa, know if you knew whoa. that oh boy yeah and and that's the stuff that's easy but i think the stuff that's just under the surface like we were just talking about is where this movie is strong yeah and i just my last point again uh again about the release of the film and just uh, any sort of fanfare surrounding it really it just seemed like it was just kind of dumped into this weekend when you're you're kind of have this week the film around no time to die and it's on like halloween weekend with a literal halloween movie that's coming out that was out around it nobody just saw it and it's such a shame but again i, re- I repeat it's on hbo max you should watch it i have now done more for the film than disney did <laughs> my current visual effects supervisor was the supervisor on this film. And he told me what he asked me what I thought of it. And I was like, I thought it was pretty good. He's like, really? It's like, I didn't like it. And it's funny because everyone he's talked to that was removed from the project and saw it blind, just going in blind has liked it. And he's just awestruck by it. He can't see why. And I was like, you're too close to the movie. You don't know what the fuck you're talking no, about. No, exactly. <laughs> this is why, yeah, you can't see the things that you, you can't you have an objective. Opinion you can't. There. You can't. I'm sorry. No. So anyway, your number six. We my talked number about. six was the Green Knight. So what is your number six? So my number six, I think you could have a subtitle: Cooking with Cage. <laughs> my number six is Pig. I like Pig. Pig is. I like Pig. I like Pig. <laughs> I really, really thought this was going to be a revenge story to get a try a, a, a prize truffle pig back, kind of like a uh, a Pacific Northwest taken. Sort of. I really did not expect Nicolas Cage to turn in one of the best performances of his career and sort of make a quiet, reflective film about food, memory, the love between a man and his pig. I mean, it's it's it was pretty remarkable that the the change pure cage all at the same time. It is because we've seen him be good before. I mean, he's just he's he's Nicolas Cage in almost everything he does. But yeah, he definitely is 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 great in this one. Writer-director Michael Sarnowski did such an amazing job. I mean, it's his first real feature. And it's first, like, major. he made some shorts and he worked on in some television. But this pig is his first major feature. And because of it, he's now directing A Quiet Place Part 3. Like, the, 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 the capper of a trilogy. The quietest place? The, yes, even quieter. Uh, I feel like that kind of says it quieter, all. Quieter, harder. <laughs> too quiet, too place. But it's a very, you know, short little 90-minute runtime broken up uh, in three parts with each one named after a food that takes pl- that, that you see in this particular section. And it kind of makes it feel like courses rather than sequences. I mean, that's kind of a, you know, a straight line there for that one. But there is a quiet brilliance. We talked about Cage. I mean, behind his bravado performance, this isn't Wicker Man Cage. This isn't Caster Troy. Like, this is a quieter more subdued man that just wants to be left alone. Just leave me alone with my pig. <laughs> but it really reminded me, I, I don't think it was on my life. You think it just missed, but did you, cause you saw this one, didn't you? Clearly you did. I liked yeah. it quite a bit. Um, Ooh. Uh, <laughs> but I was, I not, was not, not, not like a, not in a deliverance kind fair of way. Fair enough. 
but I was really reminded of First Cow watching it. Did you see First Cow? You know what? It's been on my list for two years. Okay. But, like, it's got that, if anybody out there has seen First Cow and Pig, very similar. Like, there's, it takes place kind of like it's got a forest setting, the food-adjacent plot. I mean, it's very reminiscent of that 2020 film. But I think what it does really effectively is there are really no flashbacks in this movie, but the way it unfolds as Robin, who's Nicolas Cage's character, makes his way back to the greater Portland area, you basically learn everything that you need to know about where he's been, what his old life used to be with his work and his family, but it it, it really just kind of stays within itself, the script within within itself the whole time. It doesn't really overreach. Um, but yeah, come for the cage and stay for the culinary world. <laughs> like it's, you know, there's just a lot of really very tender, sweet moments um, that really just work. And I've noticed there's a lot of sexual metaphors in here with all of our culinary talk. <laughs> Was that planned or is, is that just how much we love this movie? I just think we love it. That's what I think it is. I think it's I think it's a it's a I think we love it. I think we love it. It's great. I loved it. Fuck, it's number six on my list. Jesus. I do love how it just kind of takes that whole revenge odyssey, John Wick, nobody type movie premise, and it gets quieter as the movie goes on. And there's some pretty poignant, reflective mm-hmm. stuff here at the end that is just beautiful filmmaking. Yeah, I can't really phrase it any other way. That's just it's beautiful filmmaking. Well, I loved too that there was always kind of a there were multiple times in the movie where there were realizations about who actually was who was actually sitting here. Like there's multiple times they go to restaurants or two places and, uh, and there's just kind of like, Oh, Oh my God, I haven't, I haven't seen you in so long, <laughs> that sort of thing. You know, like the, he's just so revered in this world and you don't need flashbacks of him in a kitchen with like his, you know, chef's coat on or something, ordering people around or making food. It's just like, yeah, the way people react to him when they see him, even now disheveled, long hair, cuts all in his face and everything, wearing like shitty clothes. And, uh, but, I like that he refuses to clean off the whole movie. <laughs> yeah. No. Great. What's the point? He's he's It's done so well for him. He makes enough money getting truffles. So, um, yeah, Pig is number six and, uh, and, and, and with a bullet. Fuck Seattle. That's the end of part one of the 2021 McShank podcast top ten list. Stay tuned for part two coming at you.